welcome uh, to the Week Ahead in Russia, RFRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin and The Weaponization of Everything. Mark, thanks again for joining me on this podcast on a monthly basis, and I'm very happy to welcome you today. Hi there. Right. Uh, great to have you. And as is now customary, we're doing this podcast on Twitter spaces, and we're happy to take a few questions at the end. If you have a question, the best way to ask is uh, by DM during the podcast. Uh, now, once again this week, I want to start with a kind of disclaimer. I think it's worthwhile to talk about the war in Ukraine, uh, but in some ways there are really no words still to describe the enormity of it. Um, you know, this is an unprovoked war that's killing many thousands of innocent people, essentially because of the whims of one man. Among the dead now are three generations of women killed by a Russian airstrike on Odessa on Saturday, the eve of Ukrainian and Russian Orthodox Easter. A woman and her three-month-old daughter, uh, and also her mother, the child's grandmother, were killed. And at an Easter service several hours later at Russia's main cathedral in Moscow, um, Russian President Vladimir Putin gave uh, the or Russian Orthodox Patriarch Kirill an Easter egg described by the state news agency RIA as a symbol of the triumph of life. So really no words for that. Now, um, Russia launched the new invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, so it's now in its third month. Um, and one thing I'd like to discuss, uh, and my guest and I uh, last week uh, touched on this, is a question that, or, or last time, is a question that before the invasion um, and in its early days seemed to have a simple no answer. Uh, but lately more and more people seem to be saying the answer could be yes. Uh, the question is, can Ukraine win? Uh, and I guess a related question is, what would uh, constitute a win for Ukraine? Uh, and another question is how this may affect Russia's thinking uh, and Putin's thinking going forward. I, I saw that, um, I guess, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken mentioned uh, on his visit to Ukraine uh, yesterday, last night, um, that uh, he, he said that in terms of its war aims, Russia is failing and Ukraine is succeeding. So, Mark, apologies for the kind of three-in-one question, but I'm interested in your thoughts on, on these. Okay, well, yes, indeed, it does very much depend on what victory means, um, which is a depressingly academic way of starting, because we have to recognize that simply by not losing, in effect, Ukraine is winning, given the initial expansive nature of Putin's war aims. However, if winning means a full military victory, including driving the Russians out of Crimea, then I think that is, to be perfectly honest, much, much less plausible, at least in the, the foreseeable immediate sort of months and year um, time frame. I mean, realistically, what's happening now? The Russians are adapting to the, the, the failure of the first stage of the war. They are now much more sort of relying on war as is fought by, prepared for, and trained by the, the, the military. 
clearly the, the first stage of the war was much more driven by Putin's and the spooks' own notions about Ukraine and how it was going to just fall at the first push. We've seen the appointment of General Dvornikov as a single unitary military commander, which in and of itself is not necessarily a, a game-changing move, but it might be significant if it exactly suggests that there's going to be less political micromanagement and more a chance of, of letting the soldiers do their thing. Even so, there are very, very distinct limitations to what the Russians can meaningfully do. Dvornikov has got at the moment about maybe 80 battalion tactical groups, of which perhaps a quarter have been quite badly mauled and will need to be very, very heavily sort of replenished with men, equipment, and just simply given a chance to get their bearings again. Um, about another 11 battalion tactical groups are occupied in dealing with the sort of the last uh, defenders of Mariupol. And although we've had this um, suggestion by the acting head of the Southern Military District, that in fact their aims also include taking Odessa and basically continuing their sort of land bridge, shall we say, all the way to Transnistria, essentially locking Ukraine away from the Black Sea, I honestly don't think that this is a plausible objective. Um, it, I mean, I'm sure it's one that they, they would be delighted, but look, they, they've already had one go at Odessa and they failed. It's much more defended now. The Russians have lost a lot of their military capacity. And I think as much as anything else, this is mind games. This is an attempt to try and get the, the Ukrainians to essentially pivot some of their forces to defending against an attack that's not going to happen. But what it does speak to us is the degree to which actually the Russians are, are obviously going to be willing to change their objectives depending on the situation. What I think is going to happen is they might make some further gains in the east, in the, in the Donbass and Lukansk regions, and then it's it, probably that's about it. But the thing is, driving them out would mean that, in effect, they are the, the defenders with all the advantages thereof. And I think it's more likely that we're going to see a deadlock. And it's hard to predict the exact uh, lines, battle lines, but nonetheless a deadlock in which two pretty exhausted powers are slugging it out like sort of boxes in the ring who've been in there for way too long. At one point, one of them will gather the resources for an offensive and perhaps make some advances before that peters out. Then maybe the other side will do the same. It's not a pretty thought. It's not um, at all heroic, but nonetheless, I think that looks at the moment the most likely thing. It's clear that there's no real talk of a peace deal at the moment. I think in right. part because both Bucha and Mariupol in different ways have made that impossible. But I think the final point I'd make, though, is that look, all wars are ultimately political acts, and so they depend on the political context. And therefore, I think the outcome will obviously depend on the Russian leadership, its changing sense of cost-benefit analysis, its decisions about whether it's willing to escalate, whether Putin is actually willing to call this a war and mobilize more widely, or, God forbid, thinks of something like using tactical nuclear weapons, but also um, the West's determination and, and, and capacity to continue to support Ukraine. So at the moment, unfortunately, I just think this is this is just going to be dragging on. But there are all kind of contingent factors. Right, absolutely. One thing you you mentioned uh, this statement by 
uh, a Russian general, I guess it, it was on Friday, I believe, you know, suggesting quite strongly that, that Russia would aim to take the, you know, a, a swath of southern Ukraine, you know, leading from the Donbass and from the Russian border across, uh, you know, where where the where the isthmus connects uh, mainland Ukraine to Crimea and then through Odessa and to Moldova. Um, but you, you, I think you you said this this looks like more like kind of a a scare tactic or you know a, a, I guess a, a faint uh, bluff or something. Um, I, I guess I'd ask the question, and and I guess the 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 general who who made this remark wasn't very high level. I mean, it wasn't obviously it wasn't Shoigu or or um, a, a a leader of the Russian military. Um, I guess one question would be, is that is this the kind of thing where if a, if a Russian official says this or a military official, is that going to create expectations in Russia um, that this is what's going to happen? And does that make it harder uh, for Putin um, to settle for something less? Um, to be perfectly honest, I get the sense, just from my own reading of the, the Russian media, that this was given a lot more coverage in the West than in Russia itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, the general, I mean, he's a major general, as I said, he's, he, he was the Dvornikov's deputy at the Southern Military District, and now he's acting head. He's not insignificant, but no, I mean, this, this is not some, some grand political statement that I think will, will in, in, in any way compel the Kremlin. If it, it had been Putin, if it, as you say, if it had been Shoigu or, or, or someone similar, or if it had been given particularly um, high-level coverage within the Russian media, perhaps. But mm -hmm. as is, no, I mean, I think this is just a statement which has said, I mean, at best, I think is some kind of, as you say, a bluff, and at worst, it's just some general speaking off the hip, you know, off the hip. I mean, it's worth noting also, I mean, he, he hedged it round in, in all kinds of conditionalities. He didn't simply say, this is our goal. He said that, you know, we would re you know, we want to reach out to Transnistria and so forth. I mean, it's, 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 it's framed in quite ambiguous ways. Right. Uh, and I guess another question to follow up would be, you mentioned, you know, the idea of if, if a win for Ukraine includes uh, you know, taking back Crimea. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, and, and you said if there, if, if uh, things go beyond kind of a stalemate along somewhere in the Donbass, um, then it would be Russia that's on the defensive with all the advantages. Did you mean like military advantages or, or kind of political or, or? Oh, military. I mean, it's, it's, it's a straightforward, I mean, again, it's not actually as if everything works out as an algorithm, but the, the, the general rule of thumb is that the attacker needs a three, type, three to one military advantage. If the Russians are properly dug in, they would have, you know, again, particularly in the Donbass, relatively short supply lines into Russia. They can be covered by Russia-based air power much more easily, that kind of thing. It just, it's, it's a lot harder to, to push them out once they're in, in, embedded there. Right, and I guess Crimea, you know, would be another, you know, another kind of issue altogether as well, which might even be more difficult, um, you know, for Ukraine to take if it, if it came to that. I really, exactly, I think, I mean, it, 
the, the scenario in which Ukraine could take Crimea, I think, is, is not one really I, I can envisage at the moment. Not least because for Moscow, look, being pushed out of the Donbass would be a catastrophic political um, blow to Putin and the Kremlin. But on the other hand, it is not existential for the Russian state. Like it or not, not just the Kremlin, but I think most Russians do regard Crimea as part of the Russian Federation. And therefore, an, an attack on that would be considered to be, shall we say, a sort of an invasion of, of the Russian mainland. And it, that is the kind of thing of which, for example, mass mobilizations could, could, could be um, sort of based. So, no, I mean, I think you know, realistically, Crimea is too hard a target. If there's, even, if there's going to be movement, it's not going to be driven by direct military action. It will be because of, as a part of some potential future peace deal that finally resolves the Russian-Ukrainian relationship. And that is, I would thought, years in the future. Right. Okay. Uh, thanks for that. It's very, uh, very enlightening. Um, I guess the second question I want to ask is more about what's happening in the Russian elites, as they call them. Uh, in particular, uh, there's a Bloomberg news article that came out late last week, citing 10 people it said had direct knowledge of the situation. Uh, Bloomberg reported that, quote, with military losses mounting and Russia facing unprecedented uh, international isolation, uh, a small but growing number of senior Kremlin insiders are quietly questioning, unquote, uh, Putin's decision to launch the invasion. Now, the article said that these people have come to believe that Putin's commitment to continuing the invasion will doom Russia to years of isolation and heightened tension that will leave its economy crippled, its security compromised, and its global influence gutted. At the same time, though, it said that the, quote, ranks of the critics at the pinnacle of power remain limited spread across high-level posts in government and state-run business, and that Putin is determined to push on with the fight. Now, Mark, you mentioned on Twitter that you're hearing similar things from your contacts and sources in Russia, uh, and that it's not uh, just people in government and business. You wrote, quote, even within the security structures, there's growing alarm and dismay at the invasion, the way it was mishandled, and Putin's apparent refusal to appreciate the long-term dangers. Um, now, could you just tell us a little more about this uh, growing concern and maybe about how it might affect developments in the coming weeks and months, I guess, in the war and, and in Russia itself? Surely. I mean, let's be honest, those critics are absolutely right. In many ways, I think my view is that Putin is dragging Russia back to the 1970s, an authoritarian or uh, an increasingly gerontocratic regime with a decaying, grinding to a halt economy, a population who are unenthused, to say the least, but having to be kept in line by propaganda and repression, and not much soft power or status in the world beyond that. But in terms of what that means in terms of the elite, we've got to start from the point that there are no Putinists. There is no real kind of ideology of Putinism. People are not there because I think of, of some kind of commitment to him. No one put within the elite is going to hurl themselves on a grenade to protect the great leader. This is a system that worked precisely so long as it did work by 
elevating, motivating and co-opting a collection of, on the whole, smart, ruthless, pragmatic, kleptocratic opportunists for whom cooperating with the regime was the best route to fame and fortune. Now, of course, you know, for many of them, they're, they're still living jolly good lives. But nonetheless, you know, there, there is a clear awareness of, of a whole variety of long-term risks, which means that they are going to be constantly making the kind of risk-benefit assessments. Now, as I'll come on to in, onto in a moment, at present, the risks in doing anything about this vastly outweigh the risks in just seeing what happens. Um, but nonetheless, it means that there is always that potential. But when we talk about kind of elite criticism, we have a tendency, quite naturally, to focus on the the technocrats, the relatively, in, in the context of this system, liberal figures. You know, we're talking about people like central bank chair Nabulina, uh, mayor of Moscow, Sabyanin, who recently um, you know, warned about the risk of even Moscow having 200,000 uh, unemployed at this rate. Prime Minister Mishustin, even, who you know, clearly he's not in any way um, openly saying anything against the war. But there have been just some, some suggestions that sort of people you know, use a classic formulation, people close to Mishustin, suggesting that he's unhappy. And likewise, Kirienka, the first deputy head of the political uh, presidential administration and a sort of the political technologist in chief. I mean, he recently visited the Donbass. Um, but again, from his point of view, as with all of them, this war makes their jobs immeasurably harder and also goes against their own vision of, of the Russia of the future. So, of course, they're going to be unhappy. Of course, also, the power that they have is very, very limited. I mean, they are the below stairs. They are the staff. They are the engine room technicians, if I can mix my metaphors, of the ship of state. You know, Putin expects them to keep things running one way or the other. And at the moment, they're, they're doing their best. And interestingly, they clearly also have the authority to be able to maintain, you know, a relatively economically liberal model, if not politically liberal. Um, recently, for example, the, dr the uh, draft of a new law on what to do about uh, businesses that have left the Russian market um, came to the, the state Duma, uh, sponsored by United Russia, parliamentarians, though largely it seems drafted by the Ministry of Economic Development, and it's actually quite a, a liberal, practical document. Early talk about nationalisations and so forth has largely been put to one side. So, you know, the technocrats are unhappy, they have good reason to be unhappy, but there's just not a lot they can do about it except just simply try and sort of moderate within their own spaces. What we have a tendency, I think, to overlook, and in part because they're much less West friendly in every sense of the word, is his other, is Putin's other flank, which is the nationalist flank. And I think what I think is particularly interesting, and, and if this really does emerge properly, I would suggest this is going to be much, much more dangerous for the regime, is precisely a pragmatic nationalist critique. People who, and these are often going to be within the security systems or the military, people who don't have a problem with forcibly making Ukraine realize that its proper place in the world is as part of Russia's sphere of influence, who don't have a problem with war as an instrument of statecraft, but they have a problem about it being handled so very, very badly. 
So this is actually much more, it's, it's a competence-based um, critique of Putin. And it's interesting, because we've seen this, I mean, there are figures like, you know, Sterlkov, uh, Mr. Girkin, a man who sort of, by his own um, admission, pulled the trigger on the Donbass war, who's been a kind of critic for some time. We have all kinds of others who, you know, up to now have been very much in the political fringes, but who are now basically actually increasingly, um, I think it's fair to say, emboldened in how they, 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 they criticise the Kremlin, how they criticise Shoigu, how they bring up the issues of corruption, which we've noted, which is clearly has been a real um, force undermining Russia's combat effectiveness. And they all put it down to um, what what uh, Strelkov, I mean, he, he uses the term Russia's unique strategic advantage, in other words, Putin, as, as the real force. So I think, you know, this, this is what you have to bear in mind, that there are people who are, more obviously and understandably critical, but who frankly don't have really much muscle in this system. And then there are people who are beginning to emerge with a different type of critique, but particularly they are within the, the structures that do have muscle within the system. Now, all that said, there's, there's, there's a lot of very kind of loose talk about the possibility of, of, of palace coups and such like. This is a system which is well designed to proof itself against coups. Mm-hmm. I think we're a long way from that, but one can think of a critical path. You've got at the moment the Roskvardia, who are ultimately the first line of defence of, of, of the regime against the public, being chewed away in Ukraine and being very, very unhappy about how, as they see it, being used as cannon fodder. It's a very stupid move, frankly, to, to, to send your, your, your Praetorian Guard into battle like this. The deputy head of the Roskvardia has been arrested and is now in Lefortova prison. And when Zolotov, his boss, tried to get a meeting with Putin, apparently Putin ducked it. Meanwhile, the FSB, you've got one of the deputy heads, Biseda, in also in Lefortova prison. Um, and look, you know, I'm sure all the things he's accused of doing, I'm sure he did. But on the principle, so does everyone else in the system. So he's clearly being used as a scapegoat. We have growing disaffection within the military, and particularly if we see continued political interference. If, for example, Putin pushes Dvornikov to a major offensive earlier than really he, he will be ready for, simply because Putin wants a victory to declare on Victory Day, 9th of May, you know, all of these things could, could, could kind of add up and create what we might think of as potential resistance to Putin that is waiting for, for something to cohere it. Because, I mean, everyone is, is being very paranoid because this is a system that relies on paranoia and on atomizing people. Everyone, I mean, I'm sure everyone who of, of, of the sort of anti-Putinish sort of official camp would be fine with the old man going, but would prefer someone else do it. No one wants to start those conversations. But it means that you might say if something happens, if there's some black swan event, if there is a particular economic or political crisis, that's the point when this issue of the constant reassessment of loyalties comes in. And as we've seen, for example, you know, through the Warsaw Pact countries in 1989 and then to a degree also in the Soviet Union in 1991, you can have systems that look very solid, ruthless and in control of their elites and their public alike until all of a sudden, they're not. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, very fascinating and, you know, insights that I, I really 
wouldn't have thought of myself in some ways. Um, I just wanted to go back. Uh, for me, you cut out for just a few seconds. Uh, I don't know about for others, but uh, when you were saying, you know, the second group, um, not the technocrats, but the mm -hmm. second group, um, you know, they, they're fine. They're not, don't have a problem with war. They don't have a problem with forcing Ukraine to be subjugated, I guess. Uh, but they do have a problem, and I guess you said something like with failure or, you know... Exactly, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. They, they, they have a problem with it being done badly, and particularly they have a problem with it... I mean, again, everyone will 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 blame other people. You know, the the, the generals will, will think that Putin relied too much on the spooks. The, Putin, the, the spooks will probably think that Putin didn't have the generals properly in hand, and everyone will complain about everyone else's corruption. Right. So I guess... I mean, sort of two possible scenarios is kind of trying to synthesize both questions or both conversations we've had. If, if things kind of move along, uh, dra drag along, uh, and there's kind of a stalemate in the Donbass or in eastern Ukraine um, for a long time, I, I guess maybe it's not so likely that some, like a, a black swan event, I, I guess you said, Will happen and, and the things will change quickly but but then on the other hand uh everything's pretty unpredictable yeah i mean look, i think this this system can survive i mean again you know whether we talk about it as going to be in the 1970s soviet union or even worse example sort of north koreanization um you know one way or the other it, it will adapt um, economic sanctions are not going to bring it down, in my opinion. Um, they absolutely bite dramatically, and particularly into the into the regime's capacity to renovate its military forces, maintain the same level of adventurism abroad. I mean, I think, with the exception of Syria, which I think they're definitely going to try and keep going as much as they can. I, I imagine that we're going to see, you know, all all, all the various hotspots we worried about, like Mali and so forth. There's not going to be any kind of resources being put in, able to be put into there. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, if this system has to militarize and mobilize and basically can become a state controlled one, if need be, it will. And it's interesting that, for example, um, you know, Alexei Kudrin, former finance minister, economic liberal, certainly, um, you know, talking about two to three year adaptation process. And I think that's that's the kind of time frame people are thinking of, um, you know, Obviously, the military, the military's capacities to fight are going to be very, very different in a year's time, given that it can't kind of replenish the precision-guided munitions to anything like the same level and that kind of thing. Um, you know, but nonetheless, I, I, think, I think we have to accept that potentially we are, we are seeing a status quo that will, will survive long term. But exactly, it becomes unpredictable. It, become, it, it's, it may look strong, but it will be brittle. Its capacity to adapt to, to changes, which could be anything from you know an, an unusually harsh winter to a cascading economic crisis that leads to very high levels of unemployment. I mean, there are suggestions of twelve to thirteen percent unemployment, which would be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in these circumstances, or of course something happening to the Vosges himself. Um, you know, in, in any of these cases, it, it's a lot harder to to predict what would happen. Right, absolutely. Um, and uh, we're running out of time, um, and we'll have to wrap it up shortly, but uh, I'd like to take a few questions. Um, 
So there is at least one question out there now. Um, and I will, uh, I will, I guess I'll, I'll read it from Stephanie Carvin. Um, and it has to do with corruption, the corruption that you mentioned, and also uh, the, the sanctions and how they're hitting. The question is, uh, is there any indication of how sanctions have affected Russian organized crime? Uh, does, it, does it create more opportunities uh, or is it uh, financial hurt for them or, or, or both for, your, for organized crime groups? I mean, obviously, sanctions do create opportunities and a lot of that will be relatively petty. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, making sure that, you know, the mistresses of oligarchs get their Chanel handbags or whatever. Sorry. In the longer term, my suspicion is that we'll see the state try to use it more. Okay. Mike, Mike, sorry. <clears throat> Tail end of a cold. Um, and again, going back to this North Korean model, North Korea has Bureau 39, which is essentially the state's Ministry of Crime. It's, you know, it uses organized crime to break sanctions in so many different ways. Bringing in technologies, hacking to gain foreign currency, um, printing counterfeit banknotes, producing methamphetamines or for export, that kind of thing. My suspicion is that what we might find is organized crime increasingly becoming nationalized. Again, if this lasts long, as part of the sort of the normalization of the sanctions era is actually what the state will do is whether it actually kind of just simply provides um, scope for gangsters to do things that are useful to the state or whether it actually basically takes them over and says, look, like it or not, you now work for the government. But I think we will see existing ad hoc connections between the Russian state and Russian organized crime increasingly um, mobilized and institutionalized. So I think, you know, for a lot of gangs at the moment, Things are hard because getting things across the border is hard. I mean, obviously, it's, it's at the moment with the war, the, the existing flows of illegal commodities, above all Afghan heroin, f through Russia, through Ukraine, into Europe. That's all been, been, been thrown up in the air. Um, so there's a lot of adaptation going on. But my big concern is precisely for a new Kremlin Bureau 39. Well, that's definitely very uh, fascinating and... Uh... Informative. Okay. Um, thanks, uh, Mark, for that answer. Um, any any other questions uh, from from the audience? Give it a few few moments here. One has any? Come now, don't be shy, people. Uh, hello, do you hear me well? 
Yes, please. Yes. Uh, my name is Maria and I'm from Ukraine. I'm grateful for this uh, space. Thank you for covering the situation from geopolitical perspective. I just wanted to probably uh, add some glimpses from the human rights perspective. I think it is very important also to talk about uh, those people in Ukraine, active community leaders, journalists, human rights activists, uh, former veterans, educators who are now being abducted in the temporarily taken territories by Russian law enforcement and Russian forces. And it's not a question, it's just a kind of request. Uh, if you have some moment, just take your time and uh, do some post with hashtag VTaken for all those Ukrainians. There are now about 150 fully proved cases of abductions and enforced disappearances and we believe that there are much more so if it tweet uh, with hashtag the taking on the people who are now you know struggling for for ukraine because they were be they were vocal that all these territories like in Kherson, zaporizhia etc is ukraine uh, and we ukrainians ask you to do this because once the names of abductees are known in the world there is a great chance to to be to survive tortures for example not to be exposed to tortures so for your efforts thank you all right thanks for that i'll, I'll just uh maria um i'll just mention um we rfrl has been doing reporting on that on that issue. I mean, obviously, you know, sometimes when we talk about the war, um, as you said, from a geopolitical perspective, um, you know, some of the things happening, um, which I tried to mention at the start of this podcast, you know, get, uh, uh, don't come to the forefront. But, um, you know, obviously, that's sort of the main effect of this war is just the human catastrophe. Uh, so, um, it's a good thing to be to keep in mind. And RFERL has been doing reporting on this situation, people being uh, abducted and disappearing, uh, particularly in in southern Ukraine and parts parts of Ukraine that are that are now held by by Russia. Um, we've had reports from Kherson uh, and I believe a couple other places about that. So we are trying, you know, in our way to to um, to get the information about that out uh, to, you know, to the public, to the world. Uh, any other, any other questions? Just give it a few more moments again. Okay, uh, so here's another question uh, through the moderator, a question for Mark. Um, is there anything that the West can offer uh, Putin uh, to help to help him climb down, uh, like a, an off-ramp, I guess has been the word that people have been using, uh, other than simply uh, securing outright victory? Uh, is, is this a war that he can't lose uh, in terms of he can't lose for, for his own purposes? Yeah, unfortunately, I think um, 
it's very different. Well, look, I mean, unless we're willing to throw Ukraine under the bus, which I don't believe we are and certainly do not believe that we should, um, I, I, I don't believe there is at the moment anything that can be done. I think that, in fact, he needs really to, to, to be forced to appreciate that there is no positive scenario. Um, you know, that actually... I think there, you know, there may well be still that notion that, well, things didn't go well before, but, you know, I don't know, the, the military will be able to encircle the Joint Forces Operation troops in the Donbass and in the process deliver a convincing military blow to the Ukrainians or, or whatever else. I think in a, in a way he, has to, he will have to be in a different headspace. Um, before he can be induced to withdraw. So I think at the moment, un unfortunately, actually, all, all we can do to try and sort of maintain peace is doing as we are at the moment, which is supporting the Ukrainians with, 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 with what they need and maintaining the economic pressure on, on, on Russia. However, in terms of, you know, slight thinking of, of slightly more positive things, I mean, I think that in, in some ways there's, there's some things that we should just uh, maybe sort of be be more cautious about our rhetoric um you know if if we are honestly saying that uh, we will not be satisfied until vladimir putin is standing in front of of, of of a you know a court in the hague and not just him but basically people from throughout the whole military structure if we are saying that we will not be satisfied until basically his 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 regime regime is humbled that's an entirely understandable perspective, moral perspective. But what it also does is it creates a situation where he has no alternatives between escalation and total surrender. He will not surrender. And therefore, in that case, we, we, you know, we, are, we are basically you know, mandating um, escalation. So, I mean, I, I, I think that um, for now, there's not much that can be done. As and if, as and when we get any kind of hint that the Russians are willing to to, to deal properly, then I mean, then we, we we have to make it clear that obviously there will be no forgive and forget. We will never be returning to the status quo of two and a half months ago, and probably I think so long as Putin is in the Kremlin, which probably means so long as Putin is alive, um, that there will continue to be certain sanctions on, on Russia, that the relationship will be, again, going back to that sort of metaphor I used before, akin to 1970s Cold War, in that there is kind of pragmatic interaction on issues of common interest, but otherwise that, that essentially the West and Russia consider themselves to be, to be in a state of conflict. But that nonetheless, um, you know, we, in some ways that we can deal with that, and that we can we can foresee a future in which actually there will be certain sanctions relief for Russia, etc., so long as it pulls all its troops out of Ukraine and acknowledges that Ukraine is a sovereign nation that gets to determine its own fate. The only wiggle room is Crimea. Now, I fully appreciate, in terms of international law and so forth, Crimea is not Russian. However, we also have to acknowledge that I, I think it's probably true to say that in 2014, and quite possibly still today, a majority of people, Crimea probably, you know, even if it had been an entirely honest, legitimate vote, would have voted in favour of being part of Russia. 
there are ways around it. There are you know ways which we could say, well, okay, there you know there there, there will be another vote on the future that will be done under proper international supervision. But in some ways, I think that if if we are also going to basically demand that Crimea must be returned, then again, I think that probably is 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 a deal breaker. None of this is right. None of this is good. But if act, you know, otherwise we run into a situation where basically we are locking everyone and particularly the Ukrainians into an, an eternal and, and debilitating conflict. But I mean, beyond that, I, I think that uh, the time for off ramps is, you know, is not now. I think actually Russia needs to be demonstrated that it will not win. Last point, and it suddenly occurred to me. When Gorbachev wanted to pull Soviet forces out of Afghanistan, he appreciated that it was politically problematic, and therefore, at first, he had to give the generals free reign. He had to say, well, you know, basically, fine, you think you can win this? You, you, you have a go at winning it. And it was only when they had demonstrably failed that he could then politically sort of actually turn to them and say, well, OK, now we'll do it my way and we'll start the withdrawal process. Now, Putin is as far from Gorbachev as anyone could imagine. But the point is, in a way, it, 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 it is likewise a case that in some ways Putin is like the generals. He will have to realize that he is failing militarily before any kind of peace is likely to be achievable. All right. Uh, I think that that uh, very interesting historical parallel is uh, is a great a great place to uh, to end this. Um, uh, so I'm going to wrap it up. Mark, um, thanks very much for joining me. That's uh, uh, amazing insights again. And I hope to talk to you again uh, next month. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. All right. I'll be back uh, next Monday for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. Um, thanks for listening.